Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, I absolutely loved the show. There was something about the simplicity, the laid-back nature, the obvious kindness of Mr. Rogers. Now, even as a kid of the 80s and 90s like me, we had some really good stuff to watch, right? We had the cartoons and incredible movies. We had everything from uh, Karate Kid, right, to, uh, to other incredible technologically advanced things to watch and entertain us. There was something about Mr. Rogers with his corny little puppets and his goofy little song that, that captured me as a kid. I bet he did many of you. And one thing about Mr. Rogers uh, was the idea of being a neighbor. In fact, week after week, he looked into the camera and he asked everyone to be his neighbor. Oh, won't you be, please won't you be my neighbor. Mr. Rogers. That's what it was all about. Well, what we're going to do for the next few weeks here at Three Circle Church, and I'm glad you're joining us, and however you're joining us right now, and wherever you are, I'm glad that you're here because we're going to take a look at the concept, which is a massive, crucial concept in the Bible. And it's the idea, the concept of being a neighbor. In fact, it's so important that in the greatest commandment, Jesus said the entire law of God, His standards could hang on two points, loving God and loving people. Our neighbor as ourself. So it's important that we understand what a neighbor is. Well, we're going to dive into a parable that Jesus told. It's one of his most famous, certainly one of the most beloved parables, where Jesus is going to help us understand what a neighbor really is, how we can be a neighbor, and how being true neighbors, true neighbors in the biblical sense, could literally change the world. So buckle up and join me in the neighborhood as we begin the series at Three Circle Church called neighbor. A beautiful day for a neighbor Would you be mine? Could you be mine? It's a neighborly day in this beauty wood A neighborly day for a beauty Would you be mine? Could you be mine? I have always wanted to have a neighbor Just like you I've always wanted to live in a neighborhood With you So let's make the most of this beautiful day since we're together, we might as well say, Could you be mine? Could you be mine? Won't you be my neighbor? Won't you please? Won't you please? Please won't you be my neighbor? So welcome to the Neighbor Series. During the next few weeks, we're going to take a look at this very important and crucial concept in Christianity known as being a neighbor by looking at one of Jesus' most beloved parables. And it's the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, for the next few weeks, we're going to look at that story and unpack it completely. I think oftentimes we just fly over the top of it. We feel like we're familiar with it, but there's so much for us to learn from the Good Samaritan story. Jesus has so much to teach us through this incredible parable. Now, a parable was a story that Jesus made up, He invented basically, to make a point, to teach us things. 
Another thing we're going to look at is the context of the Good Samaritan parable. Because what you're going to learn is that it happened during a conversation. Jesus was having a conversation with someone and He answers a crucial question that was asked of Him with the Good Samaritan story. So I want you to understand that. The parable of the Good Samaritan was Jesus' way of answering a crucial question, not just that this person in the story is going to ask, but it's a question that we all ask. And the question is this, and you're going to see today that it's the wrong question. It's the question of, who is my neighbor? And that's a question that a, a scribe, a lawyer is going to ask Jesus, but it's also a question, unfortunately, that we all ask. And Jesus is going to give us a better way of looking at this. In fact, Jesus today is going to teach us not how to identify neighbors, but how to be one. So let's jump into the Scriptures and let's see what led to the telling of the story known as the Good Samaritan. So if you have your Bibles, go to the book of Luke, if you will, chapter 10, and we're going to begin reading in verse 25. And it says this, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, Well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. All right, so let's dive into this. First of all, who, who's Jesus talking to here? The Bible says that he's a lawyer. Other places says he's a scribe. He's both. And what this means is you need to understand that in ancient Israel, in Jesus' day, Israel was a theocracy underneath a dictatorship at this time. Rome ruled the land. Uh, Israel had fallen to the Roman Empire. But they allowed local governments to continue to operate the way they always had as long as they paid homage to, loyalty to, and most importantly, taxes to Rome. So Israel is still an operating theocracy underneath that dictatorship of Rome. And within that very confusing system of government, you had these people known as scribes. So when it says here that he's a lawyer, it means he is an expert in the Mosaic law. Okay, So he's not an attorney in the sense that you and I would understand. He, he knew the Bible. He knew the Old Testament. And he knew how to operate within it. He was an expert on the law. And he comes to Jesus and he asks him an important question. The first question that he asked Jesus has nothing to do with a neighbor. It's, it's a really huge question. He says, how can I have eternal life? Now the Bible tells us in other places that the motivation of this lawyer was not to get wisdom and information from Jesus. He didn't want that. He was trying to trap Jesus. So he was trying to, to trip Jesus up. And so he asked him the biggest question of all. So if you mess the answer up on this, you're going to be really seen as a guy you can't really listen to. So he goes right to the top. How do I have eternal life? And Jesus asked him uh, a question here or, or, or answers him by saying, hey, just keep the law. Basically, he says, keep the law. Now, it's important to understand that the scribes' motivation wasn't to become wise, and that was kind of the way they did things, the scribes and the lawyers. See, these people, the men of the law, they talked the law more than they walked it. So what they were all about is debating it. They would rather talk about it. You know, I've known people who would rather talk about working out than actually work out. I've known people that would rather talk about writing a book than actually sitting down to write the book. I've heard people talk about going on trips rather than setting a date for the trip, right? Well, that's kind of how the lawyers and the scribes were known to do. They were known to just debate things all the way to the bottom, but never actually do anything with it. And that's kind of the, the, the person that you have here talking to Jesus. Well, Jesus offers the lawyer an impossible solution. Keep the law completely. Now, that's impossible. If you take a, a first glance at that, if you're 
if you believe in the gospel the way we do here at Three Circle Church, you understand that we teach, because the Bible teaches, that you cannot save yourself. So there's not any amount of good works that you can do to save yourself. But it seems like Jesus is telling the lawyer here, hey, if you will do the right things, you can be saved. And what I want you to understand is Jesus was giving him an impossibility. He was saying, all you got to do is go keep the law. And, and what the lawyer had answered Jesus was the culmination of the whole law. Jesus himself will say in another place that the entire law hangs on those two commands, love God and love people. You can, the first half of the Ten Commandments is all about loving God. Second half of the Ten Commandments is all about how you relate with people. So Jesus gives the guy an impossible task. See, I want you to understand right out of the gate, before we get to the Samaritan story, the context of the Samaritan story actually teaches us the gospel. And the gospel teaches us this, that there's no way you and I could have saved ourselves. Jesus did that for us. Jesus is telling a lawbreaker, right? This guy's a lawbreaker. He's telling him to keep the law. Jesus knows that this lawyer has not kept the law in his life, and he can't keep the law. And when I say the law, I mean the law of God. The law of God given to us through Moses, was the standard of holiness for God. But no human being, except for Jesus, has ever kept the law. And in fact, the law was never meant to save us since we can't keep it. It's not meant to save us. Well, what does it do? Well, for that answer, we go to the book of Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 19. Listen to what it says. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Now what, what's all that about? Well, what it's telling you is the law of God actually shows us that we fail and it reveals our sin. The, listen, the function of the law of God for those of us who believe in Christ, is to drive us towards Jesus. Because in our attempts to be good enough to save ourselves, we realize we can't. We're doomed. We continue to fail. So what the, the book of Romans teaches us there is that the law actually pushes us to Jesus, the very law that it talks about, the very Jesus that the law reveals to us, and it shows us that we're sinners and that we need a Savior. And so when Jesus looks at this lawyer and says, hey, it's easy to have eternal life, just keep the law. Well, that's an impossibility. What Jesus is doing is pointing out to this lawyer and to us, since we're reading it today, that we need Jesus. Let me just remind you, before you get into the Samaritan story, this is not a story about you being a better person and being kinder and gentler and more caring to people so that you can save yourself. That's not going to happen. No, the story we're going to hear today, the challenge to be a neighbor in the biblical sense is one that flows out of our transformation by Jesus. You see, Jesus is the only one who kept the law for us. Jesus fulfilled the law on our behalf, making the way for our redemption. See, Jesus came and did what you and I couldn't do, what that lawyer couldn't do. Jesus lived a perfect life. He never broke the law. So a lawkeeper came and died like he was a lawbreaker so that all the lawbreakers, you and I and this lawyer included, so that all the lawbreakers could be treated forever like we were lawkeepers. That's the gospel. That's how this worked. And so Jesus tells the guy, hey, all you got to do is do what you just said. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, the next thing that's going to happen is the lawyer is going to ask Jesus that question. It's the wrong question. 
It's the question we all unfortunately ask as well. Jesus is going to correct it. So let's take a look at the wrong question to ask. So let's take a look at the next verse, and it's going to reveal to us the question the lawyer asked Jesus. So Jesus just told him, hey, keep the law, love God, and love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 29 says this, but he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself. See, he's wanting to do what he can't do, and that's save himself. Desiring to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? You need to understand the wrong question to ask is who is my neighbor? That's the wrong question. Jesus is going to teach us through the Good Samaritan story that we shouldn't be saying, who is my neighbor? We should be asking, am I a neighbor? What kind of neighbor am I? Uh, we should be wanting to be neighbors. But the lawyer's got it all backwards, and he thinks like most of his, his people did. And you need to understand, let me put it into context for you, and we're very much like them. I'm going to show you that in just a moment. But the lawyer was an upper-class educated, probably wealthy Jewish person, okay? So he wanted to narrow what God wanted to make broad. He was asking, his question was trying to, 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 to get rid of neighbors, right? He, his question is trying to make as narrow as possible, as tight as possible, his neighbor circle, if you will, and to make sure that there was some line in the sand that he wouldn't have to go beyond. In other words, he's trying to decide what the least amount of neighboring is that he can get by with. That's why the Bible says he was trying to justify himself. It's kind of like the person that all they want to do is punch a clock at work. They don't want to put in extra hours to make sure that they're doing a great job. They just watch that clock all day. They want to punch that clock, get out of there the second they can. That's kind of what this guy's doing. He's kind of saying, look, I want... I understand that I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself, but I want the least amount of neighboring possible, the least amount of neighboring that I have to do to get by. And so let me tell you now why asking the question, who is my neighbor, is the wrong question to ask. Because listen, my friends, all of us ask this question. In the same way that this lawyer wanted to make it as narrow as possible, as comfortable for himself as possible, the least costly as possible, you and I do the same thing. We don't want to be uncomfortable. We don't want to have to put ourselves out there. So we ask the same question. Instead of saying, who can I be a neighbor to? We begin to go, who is my neighbor? Give me the line, the boundary, so that I'll go right up to it, but not an inch over it. Let's take a look at why this is a bad question. So why is the question, who is my neighbor, a bad question? Let me give you three re reasons. Number one, and this is for the lawyer that asked it, and it's for you and I when we ask it. It seeks to evade personal responsibility. It puts the weight of the issue on people out there being our neighbor rather than us being the neighbor. It, it takes the action item out, out of us, the responsibility off of us. Well, well, tell me who my neighbor is and tell me who I have to love and who I don't have to love, right? So it means that we don't have to do anything. The question itself is an evasion of responsibility. Secondly, it seeks to make narrow what God wants to make wide. God wants to obliterate these boundaries that we put on His kingdom, and we want to make them as tight as we can. We want to tighten that circle up. So the very question, who is my neighbor, is one that we ask and the lawyer asks that, that, that makes it to where we don't want many neighbors. We want as few as we have to have.
And then there's this idea, thirdly, that makes it a bad question, is that it seeks to be right rather than to get it right. It seeks to, to be right. See, the lawyer had already made up his mind. His people had already made up their mind. You had to be rich or you had to be educated or you had to be religiously astute the way he was to be his friend, to, for him to treat you with respect and care and honor. So he had already made up his mind. He just wanted Jesus to confirm and affirm that he was right about that, right? That, that's what the lawyer wanted. That's what many of us want. We just want Jesus, we, we want Jesus on our team. So instead of wanting to get it right and asking Jesus to help us get it right and going to the Word for the help to get it right, we just want to be right. We already believe we are right. And we want Jesus to rubber stamp our lives the way we already have it. It's kind of like we look at Jesus and go, hey, I'm doing this right, am I not? Like this narrow view I have of a neighbor, that, that's the way I should do it, right, Jesus? Like the way I treat people who don't see things the way I see it, that's okay, right, Jesus? Because they're not on our team. So, so I, I can be that way, right? That's what the lawyer was doing with Jesus. He wanted Jesus to rubber stamp it. And see, what we need to understand is that question, who is my neighbor, is one we need to stop asking. So Jesus is going to help us understand why that is a problem. Now, before we get to the Good Samaritan story where Jesus is going to answer his, his question, where He's going to actually answer with a story, let's talk about our ideas of neighboring. Because if who is my neighbor is the wrong question, well, how do we typically look at the term? How do we typically look at neighbor? Let's look at some human concepts of neighboring right now. So when it comes to the idea of neighboring, uh, things have changed a lot. Just a few generations ago, right here in America, most homes were built with a front porch because neighboring was a big deal in the fact that we wanted to commune with one another. So you'd have a front porch so that anyone that drove up or walked by could converse with you and talk and hang out and you were welcome to come up on the porch. It was hospitality and getting to know each other, but that has changed. And over the years now, we don't build homes much with front porches. We build our homes with uh, doors on the front and garage doors that shut when we come into them. And then we, we deck out our backyards, right? So we put the grill and the outdoor kitchen and the pools and the back porch. And that's what we do now because it's easier to control the neighbor's when you're inviting them in. you got to be invited to go to the backyard, to the back porch. But you can just walk up on someone's front porch. And see, we have created natural boundaries because our natural tendency is not to reach out to one another. It's to close down. So today what we have generally in America, and it's probably in your life, I know it is in mine, is that we drive home from work. We pull into our driveway. We hit a little button and it opens up a garage door. We pull in and then that garage door shuts really tight and we go into our home and out into our backyard. And if anyone wants to hang out with us, well, they're going to have to meet some criteria that I'm about to show you that we tend to lean towards, and that's it. So neighboring to us becomes a thing that we control very, very tightly, right? And we make sure that we create the list. And how do we go about that? What are some natural ways we do that? Well, human neighbor concepts. And I want to tell you right out of the gate that all of these are too narrow for God. All of these ways of defining a neighbor simply do not grab the vastness of the concept of neighboring in the Bible. The first one is this, physical neighbors. This means next door. So physical neighbor means next door. 
most of us have physical neighbors, right? It's the guy that lives across the road. I have a house behind me, a house on either side of me, and a house across the street from me, right? Those are my physical neighbors. And sometimes that's the way we look at it. So some people in our society go, when, when the Bible talks about loving my neighbor as myself and being a neighbor, that means the people who live next to me, my physical neighbors. But let me tell you, my friends, that is true. They are your neighbors, but that's not big enough, vast enough to cover the ground of the biblical concept of neighboring. The second one is this, affinity neighbors. An affinity neighbor means that they share your interest, Okay. So affinity neighbors is actually probably today in our society the most popular form of neighboring. Because what we do is we go, hey, I want to hang out with and have affinity for, treat people and be in relationship with people who like the same things I like. So it may be you hang out with a group of people and you, you consider your neighbors people who like the same ball team that you like. Or maybe you're in a CrossFit group. Or maybe you're in a golfing group or a tennis group. Or maybe you like to go biking. Or maybe you're big into fishing and hunting and it's your hunting club. It's your fishing buddies. Whatever it is, it's, it's people that like to do or enjoy the interest you have. Maybe, maybe you like doing uh, you know, a, a, a wine club where you guys get together and you have your wine and charcuterie board. Maybe you go out west and you go to Napa every year with a group of people. Maybe that's your thing. You go, these are, pe these are my people because they have the same interest I do. Well, that's an affinity group. And indeed, those can be neighbors, but that is too narrow to grab the concept of biblical neighboring. Here's another one, economic neighbors. This means people in your tax bracket. Now, this happens more than you might imagine, where people go, you know what? I can't really hang out with people that either make a ton more than me or a ton less than me. If they don't have what I have, if their kids don't go to the same kind of school that my kids do, if they can't afford the same things I can afford, then I can't, I'm not going to hang out with them. I'm not going to connect with those people. I'm just going to kind of carve that off my life, right? And, and so, again, I'm not saying that it's innately wrong to go, well, I'm comfortable with people that are at the same financial level as me, but that is simply to, you can connect with people in that way. Maybe there's certain things you'll have in common, but that's too narrow for the neighboring concept of the Bible. Here's another one, fourthly, the ethnic neighbor. This means you consider your neighbor, the person you're going to treat and love as yourself actively. That's what the Bible calls us to do. You, can, you, you say, that's got to be a person of my own race. So it's got to be ethnic. Like I'm comfortable with people who are Caucasian like me, or maybe you're comfortable with people who are African-American like you, or maybe you're comfortable with people who are Asian like you are. Whatever your race is, if you choose to decide your neighbors based on race alone. That's going to be a really problem because we're going to see in this story that Jesus goes right at that. And the Bible is clear that is simply too narrow of a way to look at biblical neighboring. Very problematic. Uh, fifthly, uh, it would be a values and religious neighbor. Values and religious neighbor. What this means is this. It's, it's when you feel like your list of people that you're going to treat like you would treat yourself and love the way you'd love yourself, they, those people have to think like you, vote like you, and believe like you. Now, there's nothing wrong with having community groups, having friends that indeed do believe like you believe. We're supposed to have fellowship with Christians, but that's not what this story is about. The Samaritan story and what this guy is talking about and the great commandment in the Bible is not that we just love people who are also Christians. The Bible says we are to treat our neighbor and that idea of a neighbor in the Bible we're going to see is way bigger than even people who just believe like us. 
In fact, it's our neighboring of people who are far from God that's going to be one of the things God uses to bring people to Himself. This is huge for us to understand. So if you only are going to love and treat people with respect who voted the way you voted, that's a problem. It's going to be too narrow for the Bible. If you Listen, if someone on your street puts a sign in their yard for a candidate that you don't agree with, all right, and you immediately decide a ton of things about that person based on that, then you're probably going to have a problem with Jesus because He just didn't roll that way. He's going to challenge us to not be that way. That is too narrow of a term for being a neighbor. So for people to think like you think, believe like you believe, and vote like you vote, it's just too narrow for biblical neighboring. And then finally, we have stage of life. And this is talking about age, basically. So stage of life, neighbor. So you go, people that I'm most comfortable with, the people I'm going to treat like I would treat myself, going to be people who are like me. i got people like that in my neighborhood. i got some folks in my neighborhood who are of a different age, and they just you can just tell they don't want anyone around them or anywhere near their house who are of a different age bracket. And that goes both ways. I know young people who think that everyone who's older in their neighborhood is terrible, and I know older people who think all the young folks with their kids and all that are just messing up their lives. And what, what that becomes is you go, you know what, the only people I can hang out with, the only people I can love in the way that God tells me to love them are people who are my age, who listened to the same things growing up that I did, who, uh, if you're from my generation, you think, look, man, I didn't have the Internet and social media when I was in middle school and high school. I don't get all of this, right? And, and you begin to go, you know, I just want to hang around people like me. I want to narrow the scope. We want to make as narrow as we can. That's what the question, who is my neighbor, is all about. It's not about tell us, Jesus, who our neighbor is because we want to know. No, no, we don't really want Jesus to tell us any new information. What we want Jesus to do is confirm and affirm our view that we've already poured concrete all over. We've already decided, yeah, I'm going to hang out with my people. I got my people. These are the people I'm comfortable with. Well, you're going to find that the Good Samaritan story is going to challenge you. It's going to get all up in your business, all right? Because all of those definitions of neighboring, all of them, are simply insufficient. They simply do not grab onto what Jesus has for us. We're going to find that the Good Samaritan story is going to teach us that there are no boundaries on the kingdom of God when it comes to who can come in. The only boundary is the one that Jesus put on it, and it's that you have to come in through Him, through Him. So let's take a look at how Jesus answered the wrong question. In fact, Jesus really doesn't even answer the wrong question, who is my neighbor? He's going to tell a story that answers the question we should have asked, the question the lawyer should have asked, and it's, am I a neighbor? Let's take a look now at the parable of the Good Samaritan. So if you have your Bibles or your devices, you can go right now to the book of Luke again. Chapter 10, we're going to begin to read the answer Jesus gave. So remember, the lawyer says to him, who is my neighbor? And Jesus in verse 30 answers with the story. Verse 30, Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal 
and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, Take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. When, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now, let's take a few moments. Let's unpack or begin to unpack this incredible parable. So as we begin to unpack this parable, first of all, understand we're going to spend the next few weeks taking it piece by piece. We're going to come at it from several different angles because there's simply too much to learn from what Jesus said this day to do in one day. So we're going to take our first dive into it today. And the first thing we need to do is we need to uh, determine and, and take a look at and identify the people in the story. Let's take a look at the four people in the story. And remember this, the parable answers the question the lawyer and we should be asking, am I a neighbor? So that, that's what's happening here. Jesus in this parable does not teach us how to identify neighbors. He teaches us how to be a neighbor. And that's the point of this whole series. So person one in the story is the person who is hurt, the person who got stripped and robbed. A certain man desperately needs help. That's person one. So it, we assume by the story most scholars and theologians believe that Jesus meant for him to be a Jew in the story. It's a Jewish man who was going down this road. The road he was going down is a 17-mile road that was well known in that day to be dangerous. It was a road that simply had bad visibility. It was in bad shape, and, and, and it was known to have bandits and robbers that would hide out. It was a road you probably shouldn't go down all by yourself, frankly. I mean, the guy probably made a bad decision to put himself in that position, okay? That's the number one guy in the story. Number two is a priest. Now, let me just tell you who a priest is. The priests were supposed to represent God and care for the people. He's a Jewish priest. The priests were the people who, who were there to minister to people. It was the ministry folks. So this priest is supposed to be doing the right thing here. He's supposed to be caring for people. Yet the Bible says when he saw the guy hurting, bleeding, half dead according to the Bible, he just walked away. He went away. Person number three is a Levite. Now the Levite is similar to the priest but not the office holder the Levite actually helped maintain the temple and assisted in worship, basically assisted the priest. So once again, the two people Jesus chose, the priest and the Levite, were both ministers of a sense. The priest held the high office of the, the priesthood, <clears throat> but the Levites were a part of the ministry. They're both supposed to care for people, and yet in Jesus' story, the Levite goes and sees the guy hurting, sees the guy bleeding, sees the guy half dead, and yet he walks away. And then finally... There's person four, the Samaritan. Now you need to understand that when Jesus said a Samaritan, when he said that, oh man, that was not good. Like I'm sure there were a lot of stories in Jesus' day that started with, all right, there was, a, there was three guys. There was a scribe, a priest, and a guy that got beat up. But they would have never said in a Jewish audience, the fourth guy, a Samaritan. But Jesus did. The Samaritans were considered a half-breed race to the Jewish people. They they were despised. You can write it down. The Samaritan was despised by Jewish people and they were considered an inferior race. And we're going to get into next week just the background of the, the, the tension and, and the animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. But this is who Jesus decides to make the hero of the story. Amazingly, this would have been absolutely scandalous to his audience. And in this story, with these characters, we begin to see what Jesus is trying to teach us. Through these characters, Jesus is going to teach us what neighboring does not look like, and He's going to teach us what being a neighbor does look like. 
So what are today some initial lessons that we can learn from the Good Samaritan story? Our first dive into it. Let's take a look at these initial lessons we can learn right now. All right, guys, so there's a few things that we can learn today. What do we learn in our first dive into it? So we understand the context of the story. We understand that Jesus is answering this question that was asked, that we all asked. But instead of answering the actual question, He's going to give us an answer that, that actually is the solution to the question we should be asking. He's teaching us how to be a neighbor. And the first thing we can learn today is this. Religious involvement does not equate to Christ-likeness. And that's pretty obvious, right? Because what you have is you have two very religious people, people who knew the law, right, who knew what they should be doing. Two people who were supposed to be representing God on this earth, the priest and the Levite, who look nothing like God. So religious involvement does not make you a good neighbor. It doesn't mean that you understand that. The Apostle Paul tells us in the New Testament that if we do all of these wonderful things, we can, we can speak in tongues and speak like the angels and we can uh, prophesy and preach and teach and do all these wonderful things. But if we do all of that and we do not have love, Paul said that we've missed the entire point. We're like clanging symbols, right? And that's, that's what Paul's trying to get us to understand. We can be very religious. We can do all the stuff that we're supposed to be doing in a church. You can go to church, read your Bible, do a quiet time every day, give money, serve at your church, and still miss being the neighbor in the world that God wants you to be. You can miss it. You can totally miss it. So religious involvement does not automatically equal being like Jesus. Secondly, seeing must lead to feeling. I want you to notice that all three of the people passing by this beaten guy, they all see him, right? See, all of us, we live in a time where we see more than ever. In Jesus' day, to, to, to know about a calamity, you had to walk up on it, and that's what happened here. So they didn't look at their cell phones and find out about it. They had to actually walk up on it. The Levite and the priest and the Samaritan all saw the person who was beaten and bleeding on the side of the road. They all saw it. Yet two of them saw and felt nothing. Their seeing didn't lead to anything else. They were able to see suffering and see pain and see desperation and walk away and just go on with their lives, right? The Samaritan's the only one that saw and felt something. See, seeing must lead to feeling. It's not the only thing it's got to lead to. You're going to learn through this series. There's more. But the first step is when you see, you should feel something. And what does the Bible say? This guy felt, he felt compassion. And the idea of feeling compassion is a deep, guttural feeling deep within us. And if we're really people of God, we're going to feel for other bearers of His image, other human beings. So we live in a time where we see more than this Levite or this priest or this Samaritan ever could. You can look at your phone every day and know about every tragedy that's happened on the planet. You can see the images from the recent hurricane that hit the Gulf Coast. You can see the images of the uh, tragedy that's taking place in Afghanistan. You can see the pain. You can see the hurt. Do you feel anything? Or you just blow on through? Do you feel anything? Let's bring it closer to home. Do you, do, do you feel anything for the people in your neighborhoods or the people in your community that you come in contact with, the, 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 the people that God has sovereignly put all around us? Do we see them? Got to see them, but also, do we feel? Do we feel it must lead to feeling? Thirdly, it requires sacrifice and selflessness. 
When you look at this story, you've got a priest and a Levite who when they looked at the guy and saw him, they didn't, they didn't have compassion on him. Instead, you can tell they are beginning to count the cost of what it would cost them if they stopped to help. And, and you got to remember, a Levite and a priest, very busy, very important guys. They're on their way somewhere because they have important jobs to do. Not only that, this guy's half dead, which means if he dies on them in the middle of all of this, that would make them ceremonially unclean, which would mean that both of them would have to go through a very rigorous and frustrating cleansing ritual to get back to be able to do their jobs. It'd take a long time, probably cost them a lot, and they didn't want to chance that. So they began to look and go, this is, this is risky for me. I think I'll keep going, okay? You know what, though? The Samaritan comes along, and instead of counting the cost that it's going to be for him, he instead just sees the need and does something about it. And, and so here's the thing to remember. The Samaritan was busy, too. We don't know his whole life. We can infer from the priest and the Levite kind of what their lives were like. We don't know a lot about the Samaritan, except that he was probably an important guy. It sounds like he has means. It sounds like he has resources. He has an animal. He has things that, the, the, that he needed, finances, to be able to pay for medical care. The guy had, he was an important guy. He was busy too. And you know what? When you think you're too busy to be a neighbor, but someone else will do it, guess what? They're busy too. Everyone's busy. You know what I found in life when I think to myself, I'm just so busy. Everyone around me is busy. We all are busy. Everybody's got a lot to do. So not being a neighbor shouldn't be the result of us being busy since we all are. Jesus' whole point here is three important guys, three busy guys, and only one of them decided to not count the cost and be sacrificial and be selfless. And then finally, it's going to involve a few grand gestures, but more consistent action. Let me tell you what I mean by this. The grand gesture. When I was dating my wife, I was the king of the grand gesture. I wanted to be Mr. Romantic. So I put together these very uh, awesome dates and I'd put together the whole night, man. We'd go to a restaurant, go listen to music. Uh, maybe we'd go to two different places for dinner and dessert, put it all together. I'd think about what I was going to wear. I'd think about the kind of music I'd have playing, all that kind of stuff. Put a lot of work into the grand gesture, okay? At our wedding, I wrote her a song. I wanted the grand gesture. But do you know what's been much harder but far more rewarding than the grand gestures? Has been the being there every day. 21 years my wife and I have been married. And she and I both have done grand gestures for one another throughout our marriage. And there's nothing wrong with that. But grand gestures must be followed by consistent showing up, sacrifice, and love. And that has happened in our marriage. And that's what the Good Samaritan did. The Good Samaritan story starts with a grand gesture, the heroic rescue, putting him on the horse, but he sees it all the way through. The grand gesture was followed by consistency, by saying, you know what, I'm going to see this all the way through no matter how long. Hey, whatever it costs, that's what he said, I'll come and pay it. I'm going to take care of this guy. I'm going to see it to the end. That's what being a neighbor is. See, don't think that you're just going to, you know, Turn this off today and go do one big grand gesture and that makes you a great neighbor. Now, neighbors know that it involves both a grand gesture. Sometimes it, neighboring will smell like a great meal that you cook for people that aren't just like you to, to show hospitality. Sometimes uh, it will sound like the music playing and the conversation that you're having with, with a, a person or a group of people that wouldn't normally be in your circle. Yeah, the grand gesture, sometimes it involves that. But you know what it's also going to show? It's also going to be neighboring biblically is also going to be you showing up day after day, week after week, decade after decade, being there for people, being a neighbor. That's what it looks like. Because, by the way, 
This story ultimately points to the gospel, and the gospel is a grand gesture followed by daily, consistent faithfulness from our God. There's never been more grand gesture than the cross and the resurrection. But it's followed by God's daily grace and mercy and faithfulness in our lives. The Bible says His mercies are new every morning. Every day His grace is there for us. Jesus followed the grand gesture, which makes Jesus the great neighbor of all time, right? So for you and I, that's how it must look. So as we close today, I just want to, I want to just get us right out of the gate. We can begin to apply this in our lives today. Are you asking, who is my neighbor? Are you spending your time on social media or in your life? Are you spending your time deciding who is and is not in for you? Or are you looking at yourself and saying, am I the neighbor God would call me to be, that Jesus would empower me to be? Am I a neighbor? That's the big question you have to ask today. And Jesus is teaching us in this story, initially, not how to identify our neighbors, but how to be one, how to be a neighbor. Mr. Rogers, at the end of every episode and at the beginning, would look into that camera and say, won't you be my neighbor? It was him. He was being a neighbor to others. His invite was for everyone. It didn't matter what color you were, where you came from. Every kid in the world could be his neighbor because he was going to be yours, whether you liked it or not. What if you and I stopped trying to decide who's in and out in our neighbor circle? And what if we decided, like Jesus, that the kingdom of God doesn't have boundaries, that anyone can come in through the gateway of Jesus? So the question today is, are you a neighbor? And are you a neighbor in the way that the Bible teaches us to be? My hope is that right out of the gate, this story will begin to help us and inspire us to be all that God has called us to be. So don't miss next week as we continue this journey. But today, my hope is week one of the Neighbor Series will help you see that you don't need to be identifying your neighbors. You need to be a neighbor.